Uh, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. Uh, I'm Sara Pantuliano, I'm the Chief Executive at ODI, and I am absolutely delighted to be hosting this In Conversation event today with Preet Gill. Thank you for coming to see us, Preet. It's a real pleasure to have you at ODI, to have you in person in the office after you know, a year, almost a year and a half, that we've been unable to host anyone in the building, and at a time where international development has been in the news um, so much. But let me introduce Preet, for those who don't know her. You know, Preet is uh, a, a politician for the Labour and Cooperative Party, but she's also the uh, Shadow Secretary for International Development and has been since 2020, but also Member of Parliament for uh, Birmingham Edgbaston since 2017. Um, I will have the privilege to ask um, Preet a few questions, you know, to really try and, and uh, understand her vision and the vision of the Labour Party for international development. But then I'll open it up to all of you, you know, to ask Preet questions. So make sure that you um, add your questions um, to the chat, which is below your video online. Um, and I'll be taking questions also from Twitter. And make sure to actually create a bit of a buzz on Twitter about our discussion today. So use the hashtag ODI Pregill and, you know, sort of mention, add our handle um, ODI underscore um, global. But let me get started because it's really a, a pleasure to be able to ask you a few questions. I want to start by asking, you know, you basically if you look at last year, it's been very, very clear that the challenges, you know, that we are experiencing affect affect both rich and poor countries alike. Um, for a long time, international development development has been very focused on you know low-income countries. Well, I think what we've seen, you know, through the pandemic is really pushing us to urgently rethink um, development approaches, you know, the paradigms that we've used for a long time around aid and international development. So what is your vision for a more compelling international development agenda? Well, firstly, Sarah, can I just say how brilliant it is to be here in person? And honestly, thank you so much to you and the ODI for hosting us and so many people that have actually joined us. Um, it's a real privilege to be doing this brief, life-changing brief. And I'm so pleased to be the Labour spokesperson under Keir. You've seen that Keir decided not to mirror the government, despite them taking over the department. And he's committed to internationalism, as I am. But of course, my Interest in development really stemmed from my parents and my grandparents. And I, I don't think I'm any different to many diaspora communities because, of course, when our parents migrated here, this sense of repatriation and of continuing to do some kind of uh, you know, development because it was a sense of their responsibility. My, my father used to say, you know, I feel really privileged out of my brothers to come here to the UK to make a better life. And I see not just my duty to help them, but actually all my village. And so I saw my grandmother you know, set up uh, facilities for education, clean water and sanitation. And of course, people have got to remember, you know, when we used to visit India, the electric shortages, you know, and the fact that there was blackouts. And of course, when it's really hot with malaria, you know, and, and of course, mosquitoes and people suffering real illnesses. And of course, you don't have access to medical care, like many countries close by to you. This makes a difference. And so, you know, to see that sort of sense of solidarity for people that came here and feeling that they actually has a responsibility to give back um, is something that I grew up in. And I think, you know, we I saw that with my father here. He was a uh, president of, of my local Gurdwara. And of course, there was a recession in Sandwell in the 80s. And I remember him going to purchase cheese from a factory. And that concept of food bank of wanting to give out to his community. And of course, when there was the miners' strike. And 
And I suppose that brings me to thinking about the vision is that, you know, during the pandemic, what we've seen is some of the best of humanity. We've seen some of the best of not just the British public, but all around the world, the acts of kindness, the acts of solidarity. And I think now is the opportunity that given that there is that global awareness between people, people really understand, especially with the, with the pandemic, that actually this virus has crossed borders. And if we don't tackle it together, then of course it will mutate and there'll be new variants. And, you know, we'll be in this cycle of trying to address it. And this won't be the only pandemic that we are going to face. There'll be much, much, uh, you know, pandemics going forward. And we know that, you know, even before the pandemic, so many people across the world were just facing so many difficulties. And that's why, you know, it's been absolutely shocking to see the retreat from this government in terms of the impact of cuts it has made, you know, cutting programs like water and sanitation by 80%. This is the first line of defense for many countries that we that won't get access to the vaccines. And we see that vaccine apartheid has become quite a big issue. And, and so many, um, you know, uh, people are talking about it. And that says a lot about government. It says a lot about our government, because, you know, this is the time that you would, ex you know, especially with the Biden administration asserting their position uh, on the world stage, that this was a real opportunity to show the world that actually the global challenges of the future, we've got to tackle them together. We've got to come together. And so for me, you know, a sustainable world, my vision is about a sustainable world has got to be delivered locally. And that means that we've got to work with not just states, you know, heads of state, but with business, with civil society, with trade unions and the various actors, uh, are, you know, in terms of how do we support back and build back that recovery? Whose role is it? I mean, I think, you know, as a society, as a world, we've got to really ask ourselves a fundamental question who's actually going to pay for this recovery in terms of the impact? Is it going to be the world's poorest at the end of the day? And so my vision um, you know, for international development is, is using the sustainable development goals because we already have a blueprint. When we weren't on track prior to the pandemic hitting us in terms of making the advances that we are going to see. And no doubt we will have to extend that. But I think you know, for me, it's about how do we make sure everybody has a stake um, in what needs to change. And I think we have to create a movement. For me, Labour wants to create that social movement around the world where people from grassroots can feel that they can actually be part of that change, that actually this is inspiring and we can have great ideas together and we can come together and we can solve them. Yes, they will be difficult. Um, but this is where I think that, that real sense of uh, leadership is really, really lacking. And I think, you know, um, we've got to make it really tangible. So climate is a really good example in terms of understanding how do we create a sustainable world that's delivered locally. Those, you know, the climate agreements, whether it's through COP26 and the challenges we face, what we can't have is a government seeking the headlines, making lots of uh, noise about what they're going to do. And then we look at what the domestic priorities are. And there's no industrial strategy. There's no retrofitting homes. There's no electric infrastructure charges. And therefore, there isn't the jobs and there isn't that job creation. And that is no different to anywhere else in the world, because, of course, the SDGs are not something we do to other countries. They apply to us. And we've got to have a stake in that. We've got to show the rest of the world as well that we absolutely take them uh, seriously, we're committed to them, and we want to show how we can find those solutions together. And of course, how we transport, uh, transfer some of that learning and those skills and the things that actually work. It's really, really refreshing to hear you, you know, um, talk about putting solidarity at the center and also creating a movement. You know, this is something we've been reflecting upon quite a lot, you know, especially because it is a crisis of multilateralism, let's face it, and, you know, leadership, as you say. And we've all been thinking, particularly in the context of the UK, whether it is time for the UK to rethink, you know, how it positions itself externally, what kind of alliances, you know, it, it 
develops, also what kind of different development offers it uh, creates for you know different countries because not everyone needs the same. And particularly thinking of a bit of a you know a, a, a UK-wide proposition or leveraging the best of what the UK can offer from you know its capabilities in in fintech and you know capital markets, technology, health. You know, look at the including you know, the vaccination, of course, technologies and so forth. And as you say, you know, really building on what you can, um, the movement that can be created by engaging businesses, civil societies and so forth. How do you think this can be done? You know, this rethinking of what a, a different proposition um, can be articulated. I think it's really important. I think most of us, given the government's position on Brexit, expected that the government would use this time to reassert its position on the world because we need to forge those new alliances if we're going to have those trade deals and be able to galvanise other countries to come together uh, around those global solutions. But of course, what we haven't seen, we actually haven't seen that. We've seen a government that's actually in retreat and it's uh, pretty much left it to the multilateral system to find the solutions. I think you must have heard today, even Rob, saying that they will follow the United States. Actually, that's not what I want to hear from the United Kingdom. I want to hear them leading. I want to hear them talk about what are the solutions, what are the ideas that they are going to create and create that excitement. And of course, they're head up on uh, decimating our world-renowned reputation. I mean, let's be clear, DFID, um was an expertise in this field. How do you take over a department, especially in the middle of a pandemic when you've got to work together? I mean, you know, the very fact that governments cut research programs, especially those that were tracking the Brazilian variant, the, the Delta variant and other variants, right in the middle of a pandemic. And that's all because they actually don't know what development looks like in the future because, you know, they've restructured a department ahead of any strategy. And of course, there isn't any clear strategy in terms of that, that kind of um, prioritization. But I think there's a real danger when you do that, when you signal a retreat from the world stage, because what you're actually saying, I think it, it scares me that we might go down to that Pergo Dam scandal sort of days where government thinks it can buy its influence or it buy its soft power, for example, because actually when you retreat, um, you leave a vacuum people like China and Russia and others to step in. And actually, um, that is not what I see as in the year that our leadership is being tested on the G7 and on COP26. That's absolutely not what we should be doing. And, you know, we should be looking, um, look, I, I think we need to think about what are those alliances that we need. So I think there's two aspects of that. There's the alliances that we need to make between the British public here. And of course, there's the alliances that we need to make with the British public and the rest of the world. Um, and it's thinking through, you know, what do, what does that actually mean? I think the vaccine is a really good example of showing what our expertise is like, because what you've had is you've got taxpayers coming together. You've got uh, the private sector, because, of, of course, AstraZeneca being a pharmaceutical company. And then you've got our expertise, like our professors like Sarah Gilbert, who've actually come together. And then you've got Italian manufacturers that she's been working with in terms of, you know, being able to upscale. And that's a really good example of how we leverage expertise, of how we work together, how we can forge alliances that are from, you know, various sort of sectors. And I think that, you know, the government, you know, we've seen what the trade deal for Australia, it isn't working for Britain. And that's not what people expected, you know. And I think, you know, this idea that uh, somehow, you know, we're going to be able to leverage uh, you know, just because we're Britain and this idea of what does actually global Britain mean? Because this is not a government that's showing the best of British values, actually. Um, 
And it's pretty much leaving it to others, I think, to galvanize. So I think it's really incumbent on upon us to sort of think about well, what are those future alliances? How do we rethink development? You know, it isn't just about charity and aid in the way that uh, some like to think about it. For us, it's about that longer term thinking of investment. Uh, you know, how do we make sure that we are supporting those very countries to um, think about what is it that they need from us? Because as you said, not everybody requires the same expertise. And I think we do need to fundamentally come out and think, well, actually, how do we build those relationships? How do we build those partnerships with those countries? What are their strengths? You know, and where is it that we can provide support, whether it's technological solutions, um, access to finance? We know women are really, really struggling around uh, areas like that. And it can't be right that, you know, we're allowing, uh, you know, us to sort of uh, advance in technology, but not want to transfer and give those opportunities to uh, other parts of the world, low and middle income countries, so that they can bypass a lot of uh, the sort of trial situations that we've had, whether it's around climate or agrotech or other sort of uh, expertise. So yeah, I think I think this is a space that we really need to uh, really rethink about how we're going to do that. The, the, absolutely, and I think differentiating the offer and creating these alliances, as you say, both externally and domestically, will make it you know, both a lot more palatable to the countries with whom we want to work, but also internally to the British public, as you mentioned. Uh, but you, you know, you have raised rightly the countries that are, you know, struggling the most, and of course, you know, the low-income countries have been most affected by this pandemic in in, in so many different ways, and and the long-term impact of the pandemic is going to be particularly devastating for them, and obviously will make them less resilient to shocks um, in the future. Um, so, it'd be really interesting to hear, you know, what policies concretely you think need to be you know, put in place to really achieve a just and equitable recovery from the pandemic. There is a lot of rhetoric around this build back better. It's not an expression I particularly like, but I would really like the mantra to become around you know, a just and equitable you know, recovery. Um, how, how would you go about it? How, how are you planning to go about it if you were in government? I think building back better is a term that lots of people, including politicians, have been using, and yeah. you really ought to hone them down in terms of what they absolutely mean. But I think, look, most people accept you can't go to business back as usual. I know when I was talking to you about, you know, flexible working, and I think most people probably have debated this issue for God knows how long as to whether it affects productivity. Can we allow people not to be in the office? And actually what the pandemic has shown, you can be so creative and so flexible in your approach and you don't have to stick with what uh, was there before. And actually you've got to rethink what what is it that we need going ahead, um, going forward in the future? And, you know, look, what we have seen, though, um, during the pandemic is that 64 countries have, haven't been able to focus on the health of their uh, citizens haven't been able to look at the response to COVID because, of course, they've got to make those debt payments. And that is absolutely be you know, crippling for them. And I think this fact that the G20 has only given a moratorium till the end of the year is just not good enough. I mean, I think we've really, you know, this was the time, I think, you know, I wanted to see Rob really step up and call for debt cancellation and really make that commitment, because how on earth are we going to be able to reassert some kind of justice in terms of that post-recovery, um, given pandemic, given that these countries were already struggling, and now with the pandemic, they've access, you know, these situations have exacerbated, and we know 
up to nearly half a billion people will be pushed into poverty. Many countries are facing famine. This isn't the only issue that they're dealing with. And if we have struggled, just imagine what it's like um, for so many of those countries, really. And I think, you know, um, we've got to really look at the tax avoidance by multinational countries. I think it's been something that we've spoken about for so long. There hasn't just been that concerted effort um, to do enough. It isn't right that we are extracting from countries. And I think, you know, one of the things that the pandemic really makes us think about, if we take what is it that we're actually giving? You know, and I think corporates have got to take a sense of responsibility. I think they've been businesses have been doing quite a lot of work around sustainable development goals and their roles and their responsibility. But actually, they've got to go much, much further. We know it costs developing countries up to 200 billion pounds a year. Just imagine what that investment could do for public services, for health infrastructure, for example. Of course, you've got to have fair tax systems as well to um address that. And I think, you know, it was really good to hear um, President Biden talk about um, addressing some of this injustice and, you know, uh, having corporation tax. And the most disappointing thing I have to say for all of us was that we had a chancellor here in the UK attend those meetings and actually water down, uh, you know, any kind of uh, ambition that Biden had. And I, that was very, very disappointing because just imagine uh, how much money that would mean for those countries, including our own, in terms of investing um, in our NHS system. And to think that actually, you know, we didn't need that level of leadership, um, I think has just been absolutely uh, really concerning. And I think the redistribution of special drawing rights, let's wait and see what actually happens. But this idea um, that somehow they'll be put against Odespen, I think is absolutely uh, not the right thing to do. Um, and I think, you know, in the, in the longer term, of course, in the next 12 months, we'll be launching a green paper. Um, but some of the things that are really important, of course, humanitarian support and assistance is going to have to remain. But it can't just be about reacting to situations. We've got to think about prevention. How do we prevent these things from happening in the first place so that they're much more cost effective? But of course, it protects so many people in those very countries. Um, we know that, you know, so four billion people are affected by climate. And of course, this is an emergency. But if it's an emergency, it means we need to have the action and it means we need to have the 130 developing countries on side to make COP26 credible. Of course, uh, you know, Rob has made Alex Sharma's job very, very difficult. Um, I think ahead of the cuts uh, as well, you know, um, he has been uh, on the sidelines really sort of um, stating how that signals will retreat um, to the rest of the world. And of course, they are watching um, in terms of what we are doing and our sort of sense of responsibility. And then, of course, gender equality. You know, I, I think there is so much more that we need to do. I, it's, it's some of the work that I was doing um, as minister, and it's the work that we've been, we've uh, launched a consultation on this for our feminist development policy. Um, we've got to have policy coherence across gender. But I think it's much more than that. I think one of the things that we saw, um, you know, uh, recently with the football um, is, is the stark statistics around actually the increase of domestic abuse. But we know with the pandemic, domestic abuse and violence against women and girls has increased all over the world. But it isn't just on these big, uh, you know, occasions. It's the Premier League. Every time a, a, a team loses, I'm sure a woman is at home really, really worried. And we've got to think about it isn't just about solidarity and it isn't really just about talking about it. It does matter about what we do to address it. And in many of those countries, women can't speak up because of human rights violations and it's just not safe for them to do. To, and of course, they're living in patriarchal societies where they don't have a role on the decision-making table. So I think there is so much more around what campaigns, what social movements, how do we support those civil societies to really get behind and understand why it's important. It isn't just about injecting the funding, it's about making sure it goes to the places where it's going to make the greatest um, 
difference. And then, of course, social protections and uh, public services in the long term, thinking about that global health strategy. We know there's been so many countries, richer nations as well as poorer nations that have really had very difficult, weak health systems. Uh, I, I think we all saw what was happening in India and in Brazil. and It was really devastating. But of course, you know, it, it, again, in the country, the division between those that can afford good health care and can go and get a vaccine and, and be able to self-isolate vis-a-vis -vis those that can't, we can't have that level of disparity and inequality. Um, and that's really got to be um, tackled. And of course, social protections. But I mean, if you invest in public services, if you invest in your education, if you invest in your health infrastructure, then that means you create the jobs for the future. Half of Africa's population is under 25. People will migrate, you know, for work, for example. People want to actually stay where they live. They want to be close to their homes. They want jobs. They want the opportunities. No different to the British public about trying to find somewhere near your home. Their aspirations are absolutely no different. So we have to think through um, this for the longer term. But of course, you know, we've seen the global health workforce um, shortages. We've seen how we've extracted resources from many other countries. So I think it's so incumbent upon us to think about those good uh, quality jobs. How do we work with trade unions? How do we make sure that people, uh, you know, are able to access them, for example? So I think in the longer term, these are some of the things that we really want to set out in our green paper and our, in our strategy. Sounds so great. The, the questions are starting to come in from the audience, and I, I would like to also hear more. You know, you've said a few times working more with the unions. I think that's something that we are also discussing more to the eye. Something that's been, in a way, perhaps lost in you know the development work compared to its origins. Um, and I was really you know interested to hear about the feminist development policy. And, and at some point, let's come back to that. But I've got one last question before I open up to the audience. You've mentioned climate a lot, and of course, you know the UK is. <laughs> hopefully hosting COP26 in Glasgow, if not virtually, at the end of this year. And one of the goals that it has set is obviously to finally ensure that high-income countries make good on their promise of raising $100 billion um, was supposed to be by last year, but you know, let's see if they're able to raise it by this year. But at the same time, you know, obviously there's a number of low-income countries that are very focused on understanding how they can manage climate risk and how they can achieve a just transition. So it'd be interesting to hear from you, you know, how you think the UK can lead on this agenda in a way that it takes into account the different interests of you know different countries around how we make you know real progress on the climate crisis. I think the criticisms that have been levied against government are absolutely, you know, clear for all of us to see. I don't think they're going to be able to see COP26 as a success. When you retreat from the world stage during a, uh, you know, global uh, crisis in the way that they have, um, when you, you know, make cuts that 130 developing countries are watching and know and understand the impact. We've seen 33 former heads of African states, you know, come out very, very critically. The fact that we could have eradicated polio and the government decided to, you know, make cuts. And, and, the, and these cuts are about, you know, undoing all the work and the progress that we're making. And that's why it's been really, really concerning. But of course, you know, at the G7, we, we saw it, you know, many of these countries are sort of saying that Britain is giving other richer nations um, the uh, go ahead to make cuts, even though they're not, even though we are the only G7 nation. And why does this matter? It matters because if you don't have 130 developing countries on side to give COP26 credibility, they can block agreements. So how on earth will it be successful? And of course, they need to be able to have the ability to mitigate and have the adaptation for the just transition. But, you know, I mean, we're going around with a begging bowl. I mean, how embarrassing is this really for 
for our government in terms of actually are they going to be able to succeed because other nations will be saying well you've cut aid you know you've cut projects that are actually delivering on climate for example um and you know you, you know i i've just been it's just been horrifying actually the government could have taken um, the British public with you with it, and it could have used this as an opportunity to create 400,000 new jobs that Labour are talking about. Um, and the hypocrisy, I suppose, is the is the big issue for me. You can't go the, you know you can't go on the world stage and make all these big headlines about we're going to cut um, transmissions. We've seen the NDCs that countries are putting in; they're not ambitious, they're not innovative, including richer nations, and they have absolutely got to do more. Um, you know, we keep talking about climate, and yeah, it's something because it's not affecting us in the way that maybe Germany with the floods that we feel actually it's okay and you know it's it's something we've done to other people and they are facing the bet you know the brunt of it and we're not supporting them it's just absolutely uh, ironic that we are turning our back so i think um there is so much more to do. We've launched the Climate Justice Network. What we've been trying to do around the Global South is really understand you know, how people have been impacted, what displacement has meant within country and out, of course, um, and try to build that solidarity with climate justice networks here um, so that they can absolutely understand why it's so important that we start taking action locally um, to, to address you know, globally what's, going, what's happening. But I, I just, I, I am really, really worried that we are not going to get the commitments. Um, we're not going to uh, see COP26 be a success. And that's really, really sad um, because we really had an opportunity to be able to bring countries together to address some of those challenges as well. Thank you so much, Preet. Riveting stuff. There is a lot already, a lot of questions that have been clearly uh, generated by your, your remarks. Let me let me start with uh, one or two, and then you know I'll, I'll take them in maybe in batches of two or three. Um, so there is a question from John in the audience saying, "What practical measures can the UK take to address vaccine inequity, since this will be um, in the global agenda for the coming months, if not years?" Any thoughts on how the UK can show leadership here? Um, and then another question from an unnamed member of the audience is, um, Labour has, has focused heavily on aid cuts, but we know that global challenges won't be solved with development action alone. What are the big changes that uh, we would see from Labour on development beyond just spending more on ODA? Let me start with this, we've got more. <laughs> Well, great questions. Thank you so much. Um, John, in terms of what uh, practical measures uh, we can take to tackle vaccine equity, I mean, look, right from the outset, I think you know, September last year, one of the things that we were calling for is that when the vaccine is available, it's got to be equitably available. We've got to see COVAX be a success. It hasn't been the success. It's all very well that Rob says, you know, stands at the dispatch box and constantly lords how much money, which is taxpayers' money, by the way, that's gone into the COVAX facility. And of course, he keeps talking about the 100 million vaccines at the dosage. My concern is, though, that the government hasn't, despite repeated PQs and asking them the question, hasn't actually said how many surplus vaccines we have, what's the expiry date of those vaccines, so that we make sure that they're not wasted or incinerated in the way equipment before it went to India did. We've seen so much wastage. Um, there's an opportunity here to really make sure that we are in a position to mass manufacture, uh, you know, and distribute vaccines. Labour has put together a 10-point plan. Um, it's been fed in through Emily Thornbury talking about the supply chains. And of course, um, Lisa and myself have also fed into that. Um, we can't have a situation in the future that the African Union, when we met with them, said that they don't even have the ability to manufacture the vaccine in the way that the Serum Institute and AstraZeneca um, have been able to do. And we've got to absolutely be able to identify 
who has that ability? How do we transfer those tools? How do we make sure that they have the opportunities? Because that is the only way we are going to get uh, the access to the vaccines. I mean, the very fact that sub-Saharan Africa have only uh, vaccinated 1% of its population just tells you where we are. And the government can say everything it wants about you know how many vaccines it's given 11. That's not the point. The point is, how do we have a plan so that everybody understands what is it that we are going to do between now and 22 uh, to make sure that the rest of the world is absolutely vaccin vaccinated. Um, and it's, it's just really worrying that this government doesn't have a plan, but Labour does. We have put together a 10 point plan. And so I, I'd really urge John to have a look at it and please do feedback because, of course, we need to do much more. It isn't just about the surplus vaccines. It's about the G7 and the G20 asking other countries what it is doing. Where is the capacity? How do we uh, support that capacity, whether it's through, um, you know, sharing uh, health uh, staff, exp expertise from science and research? All of that is really, really um, important um, going forward as well. Um, on Labour. Well, look, I'm going to push back on this a bit, actually. Labour hasn't just focused on the aid cuts, although I have to say, in a year when you've had a department taken over, pretty much decimated, the very fact that its staff found out on social media that there was going to be this takeover. Morale has been really low. This is a leading department. And then you have a restructure and then you have no strategy. And every time we ask the government, uh, have you carried out impact assessments on individual uh, pro programs? They haven't because they've done an overarching one. And the reason that they haven't is deliberate because they know that this means that their cuts have meant loss of life. And you know, Antonio Guterres to you know, the, the UN chief, so many people have been crit critical about the impact of the cuts. And I think, look, it's been important to make the case, though, because we can't assume, you know, that everybody understands why development and uh, you humanitarian aid assistance is really, really important. Governments try to stoke cultural walls on this. They've tried to make this a very divisive issue. And it's been really, really important that for the first time we've been able to push back and not tiptoe around this uh, topic about why development is important, why it's in the national interest, what's the moral argument, what's the economic argument. And so what we've been doing in the last year is, is going around the country, not just talking to Labour members, but actually talking to people who care about development, who have got inherent interest from the Women's Institute um, to, to various you know, small in, uh, international development charities, um, to, to local charities on high streets, um, really making the case. But of course, Labour understands that we've got to meet the challenges, whether it's through climate. And we've been talking a lot, you know, Ed and I have uh, put out, um, you know, our case around what's really important to make COP26 credible. We've been talking that we need a global health strategy. It's something that we've I think it's been talked about in development for a very long time. There just has not been one. I think people understand why now that is really important. But of course, you know, it has been important that we've talked about the retreat from the world stage because what the government has done, it's let the multilateral system lead and then it will be critical of it. But actually it hasn't done anything to, to uh, really uh, address whatever the issues are with it. So I think, you know, um, we have got to talk about the aid cuts because they have cost lives and it is really important. And it matters to the British public that, that the money that we we spend is actually spent on addressing poverty and inequality and, and it's our role as the opposition to hold the government to count and I think we've been doing that pretty well because people have understood you know the University of Birmingham did some uh, polling data and they saw that actually with the, with the British public there is a 10 point increase in terms of maintaining our commitment so we haven't just talked about spending money that's not what Labour is saying Labour is saying that the Department for International Development was the best at spending money because ICAI have reported against poverty and, and inequality and that's important because that's what the act says. The act says we spend the money to make sure that we're reducing poverty around the world. Um, and that's really important. But Labour will be setting out 
uh, also those challenges of the future, how we see that we are going to tackle them. We'll have a green paper. We want to consult much widely and um, more broadly. And of course, Labour is committed to, to uh, exporting things like the NHS and public service investment. It is absolutely right that countries should be able to do that in order to be able to create the jobs for the future for their citizens as well. Great. Well, plenty more questions. Let me take another couple here. Um, so question from Anne. What measures does the UK need to take to build back its international reputation after the pandemic, Brexit and the cuts? We've actually just um, um, sort of hinted to some of that. Um, on climate change, question from um, David. As you've mentioned, climate change is going to continue to impact countries around the world and the world's poorest will suffer from, um, from these the most. How can the UK government help to foster climate resilience globally through development initiatives? We've got plenty more. I don't know if you want them now or um, maybe, maybe take this one and then I'll, I'll read that. Well, I'm going to be interested to see what measures the government takes back to build its reputation on the world stage because it's in tatters at the moment. I think it's quite an embarrassment. I think this government thinks that actually uh, just because we're Britain, that actually that that relationship and that reputation will be maintained. But of course, the world is changing and you've got to absolutely build those re re relationships, whether it's with the global south or the global no north. And, um, you know, I, I, it's quite shocking even, you know, asking the question with the government that, you know, you are ruining our reputation, our world-renowned reputation, but they don't care. So we have a government that is tarnishing our uh, reputation on the world stage and it doesn't actually care. It doesn't actually care the decisions it's taken has meant that people will um, lose their lives. It hasn't meant that actually people are looking to us for those solutions and they will now look elsewhere and we'll go elsewhere and collaborate with other countries. And I think, you know, it, it's, it's really important that we recognise that the damage that is going to be done. But I mean, Labour is really committed to reasserting our position back on the world stage. We are really clear that, you know, in terms of the moral, the economic, but in the national interest, why it's important. What does global Britain actually mean? Global Britain is about our, the best of our values, the kindness, the humanity that I talked about, the solidarity. It's about how do we make sure that we are uh, there leading on these global issues, but collaborating with all actors. And that requires, as you, as you said, not just states, unions, a civil society, a broad range of businesses. It's all of us together. Um, that need to do that. But I think that there are measures that can be taken to address that. And I think this is where the British public um, have a role to play. And I think it's so important that you let government know what it is doing to our world-renowned reputation, what it's doing to development priorities um, and commitment, how difficult it will be to restore some of that, because, of course, the world will move on. I mean, just as Biden is showing that leadership, I don't want to see a government um, in Britain lead in a way that actually it's just become a follower. I want to see it actually there, uh, you know, leading on the world stage and having those solutions. We've got some fantastic research institutions. We've got some of the, uh, you know, best sort of um, topical uh, disease medicines um, institutions here. We've got some great opportunities to collaborate with uh, other um, nations, especially low and middle income countries, whether it's on climate, whether it's on uh, future technologies. But we need to upscale those projects. We need to build. You can only do that if you have a trusting relationship and people want you to come and, and deliver some of those priorities with them together. Of course, this government's made all of that very, very difficult. Um, so let's wait and see. But please do let your governments know, let your um, MPs know that you are not happy in terms of what they're doing to development and certainly our reputation on the world stage. Um, I think this is a really um, good question in terms of, uh, yes, of course, how do we build climate resilience? I mean, we, we just need to take this to ourselves. I mean, if we think about, we all know living in the rich nation, you know, given that we've started to see flooding, we've started to see warming in our temperatures, but of course uh, we're not feeling the full impact of climate like it's displaced in many other countries. 
but how do we build that resilience? You know, what is it that we are doing here in the UK to start addressing some of those issues? And whether it's as basic as planting trees, about taking care of your environment, um, understanding the impact of decisions you make. You know, the very fact that I think all of us were outraged when we saw Amazon have that kind of disposal culture of just getting rid of equipment. I mean, we know the impact that has on the environment and landfill um, sites. So the question is, how are we going to th do things differently? I mean, you know, people have talked about the, this idea that, you know, we can't stop, we've got to stop this consumerism of, of if we've got something and it's broken, we just throw it away and replace it. Actually, how do we fix things? How do we understand the value of things? How do we get the future generations to think about, well, what is it that creates um, that resilience, you know, for, for us in terms of thinking about those future um, uh, impacts of climate are going to have on us? So I think there's a lot that the government could do. Firstly, it shouldn't be uh, cutting back programs that are trying to deliver some of that climate resilience, because we know that some of those projects are really uh, impacted uh, across the world. Um, but of course, you know, uh, that retreat and let's see what, what, they're, what else they're able to do, because the climate finance will be really important for countries around resilience and being able to make those adaptations. And of course, if that is not there, then we are really, really going to struggle. Let me take a couple more. Um, Paul, project officer for a charity in the global development sector. The international development sector has always faced change. In my organization, we've been discussing our work through a decolonization lens and a challenge in prevailing assumptions in the sector. Question for Preet. How do you see the future of the sector? Is it a dying one? as challenges become more global and less focused on specific countries, for instance, you know, climate change. Um, and then a question from Rebecca, how should the UK redefine its relationship with China as access to the EU markets um, decline? Um, do you want me to take one more? That's fine. Um, well, Paul, well, thanks for everything that you're doing in the sector. I know it's a really difficult time. I mean, having met with the sector here and abroad, I mean, they are really, really worried. And I think, you know, the, the sector's had to really rethink about its relationship with our government as well, in terms of, you know, some of them are dependent on finances. Some of them feel that they can be critical friends. Um, and some feel that actually the government really ignores them. Um, but I think the sector's got a role to play. It's got a role to play in terms of how it's going to change. How does the sector, um, support the wider sort of ambitions of a country in terms of development priorities. It isn't just about working in silos. It's about the, the bigger picture. And I think there is an opportunity um, to bring the sector. It has a huge amount of skill and expertise. I think many of them have shifted um, how they work and making sure that they are, you know, employing local people, that they understand the local demographics. But it's much more bigger than that. It's about how you work with governments and you build trust. But, uh, but it's the coordination that I want to see. So I think there's a role in the sector. I think we really have to rethink development going forward. I think government took the wrong decision to give to give uh, the responsibility to ambassadors. I think the very fact that we had in-country offices that were prevented from building relationships with host governments, were prevented from upscaling projects, that was inherently what was holding us back. Because I think had they been given uh, the opportunities to do that, I think we could achieve far more. Um, and this is the bureaucratization of uh, DFID that we had started, we started to see in the sort of last, I would say, the last decade, um, uh, pretty much. Um, and Rebecca' question was it was about the relationship. How China. should the UK redefine its relationship with China? Its access to EU markets. Well, look, this is something definitely uh, Lisa has been interested in and has been talking. It's it's important we have a relationship with China. We're not going to address the climate issues if we don't have China on board. And of course, 
with China's role in, in sort of um, development, I think those 130 developing countries that are there, not just the richer nations telling China what to do, but those 130 developing countries that it is working with some of them already, them leveraging um, and really thinking about what China's role is in terms of the bigger global issues and how it plays its part and being able to hold it to account, because that'll probably be the big challenge, I think. I think it will want to assert that, yes, of course, it wants to be committed to addressing some of these issues. I think, um, you know, the human rights issues, I mean, this is this is the thing, you know, for many governments, isn't it? It's about, you know, you want to do trade, you, you have got these big issues. How do you then uh, work in the human rights elements and being able to be a critical friend to countries like China and given what's going on in Xinjiang? You know, um, I, I, it's going to be challenging, but it's got to happen. And if you're not there on the world stage having those conversations, it is not going to happen or it's going to happen without you. And I think that's the big uh, challenge that this government faces. And I think, you know, it's really important we think about, well, what is uh, those conversations that we should be having with China, um, you know, and, and how do we get them on board, especially on climate and, and issues like that? Excellent. Um, there's a question from Sarah that says, how can the UK better direct the now significantly reduced aid budget to make sure that it is really targeted to the people and communities that need it the most. Uh, what needs to happen for it to be better spent and better directed? And how can we know that it is happening, that it is you know, being spent that way? Um, I also want to ask a, a follow-up question. When you mentioned uh, the consultation on the feminist development strategy, I wonder if you can elaborate a little bit, because I think that would be a fantastic um, sort of addition to have to our you know, development debates and as a strategy for the future to consider for the UK. I think, look, nobody says that development doesn't require reform or a rethink, and I think that's important. But I think, you know, it's important, though, that, Sarah, that a, a lot of the work that DFID did do, if you look at ICAI's reporting in terms of value for taxpayers' money, value against poverty, and, and actually doing the very things that it should do, then I think DFID did do well. The question is, was the multilateral system working? Does it require form? How do we make that better? How do we make that work for communities so that it's much more closer and that we know that the money is getting to where it needs to go? So I think you're absolutely right. Um, that is a piece of work. I mean, we've been we've commissioned within our own teams. We're doing a piece of work around looking at multilateralism reform. Um, and we'll report on that later in the year. But of course, what we're not saying is everything was perfect and we want to just reinstate everything and we think everything should continue the way it is. What we are saying is, of course, it needs a rethink. Of course, we need to um, think about what wasn't working and what was working. And I think, you know, actually, we've seen the IMF and the World Bank step up. I, I, I think on, on some of these key issues, it's about how do we work with them? Um, and, you know, where does the money go that makes the, be the, the most impact? I think that's the most important thing for me is that what is it that we can do that makes the biggest impact? Um, you know, and making sure that actually it isn't just about telling countries what we think that they need to be doing, but having that relationship. What is it that they need? What is it that they think we can do? Um, and making sure that it's much more relationship based uh, a relationship that understands and has mutual respect as opposed to one that is um, consistently telling countries what it thinks it needs to be. And that's why I think this Sustainable Development Goals gives us a framework, um, a sustainable transformation, you know, for countries to be able to be take part in. Of course, they've all signed up to those, so it makes it much easier. It isn't for me to go and, and, and tell African nations what I think it needs to be do. It's for me to say, let's talk about the SDGs and tell me which ones you see as a priority for you. Um, and where we can help support um, uh, in, in that endeavour. Um, 
collectively. So, uh, you know, absolutely, we are going to be uh, looking and reviewing that. And, you know, um, so definitely we'll come back and report on that. On the feminist development policy, look, I think it's so important because we've got to see everything from a feminist lens, from, you know, looking at gender equality. There's got to be policy coherence across the board. It can't just be in DFID. It's got to be across Bayes. We've got to look at why is it that women are still not on the decision-making table? Why is it that they don't have um, a space? I mean, you know, we're, we're taking a lot of decisions that affect women and girls. And sometimes I look around and those decisions are being taken by men. Um, and very often they don't have a voice. Um, so it's really incumbent that we hear from the, the range of the sector in terms of, and what does feminism look like in the global south? Because it will be different to the global, global north. And that's why the consultation is far reaching and so broad to make sure that we galvanize um, different viewpoints from people and absolutely make sure that what we are putting together addresses some of those, um, you know, the, the, the impacts around gender when we're making decisions, whether it's around policies, how do they affect women? Asking ourselves constantly, how will this affect women and girls is really, really important because I think we can assume that if we have it in a document somewhere, that somehow it will get done and I don't believe it will do. And I think we've got to make a concerted effort to do things differently and make sure that we are asking ourselves. So not just, you know, obviously gender being important, but the other characteristics, but having a separate feminist um, development policy, I think for that, purpose is really really important and no doubt it will have you know lots of reviews and changes to it but I think as a starting point it shows that we are really committed to looking at um, you know what our vision and what our plan is for the future making sure that we are considering the very people that it does impact and women and girls definitely um, it does. Absolutely. I've got plenty more questions but we're almost at time maybe I'll squeeze just one last one in if you can give just a one minute answer it's a question from Martin who asks the integrated review recommits the UK to working cooperatively in bilateral and multilateral settings with other countries and organisations in the Indo-Pacific region does Pritz believe that these are the right relationships um, for government to focus on? Well, we're undertaking our own internal integrated review, so we will absolutely be setting out where we think the tilt should be and what the focus should be. Do I think this is the right till I don't? Um, I, I think the, the concern for me, though, is, is that the government hasn't provided any detail in terms of why this is important as opposed to uh, working across the global south. So what is the difference? Absolutely, these countries are integral in terms of if we talk about the global challenges around health strategies and, and climate, for example. But I, but I don't. I, I really think the government has got it quite wrong here. It's unclear um, as to how this is going to work and what it is that they're going to be pushing. And I think it comes back to my original point about actually is the government trying to do this to use and by influence and, and therefore actually how aid gets spent and how the 0.7 now 0.5 um, is going to be used to leverage some of that. And I think that's a real big worry. Um, but certainly I don't, I don't think it's the right um, choice. Great. Thank you so much. I was really refreshing <laughs> to hear a vision for international development that is actually very much in tune with the debates that are taking place in the sector. You know, a, lot, a lot of us are reflecting on how we need to evolve, you know, the decolonization debates, the impact of the pandemic, you know, the geopolitical shifts are leading all of us to reflect very deeply on how, you know, we need to transform as a, as a sector. And it's, it's great to hear, you know, the, your, your vision and your ideas very much in tune with what is uh, being discussed in the sector, a vision that I found a lot less um, 
paternalistic, may I say, you know, the many uh, sort of discussions that happen around uh, development, more modern, differentiated in terms of the offer, you know, for our partners out there and really thinking of countries that require global cooperation from the UK as partners in different ways and with different modalities. And one that, you know, is modern and builds um, on the, the, the wider strengths um, that the UK has, you know, beyond just um, if you want the sector per se that falls in international development, but brings in, you know, the skills and the capabilities that the country as a whole can offer. So, uh, all the best of luck in developing, you know, the the strategy, the paper, the vision. We're all looking forward um, to hearing more about it and and you know, sort of engaging in the discussions as you go forward. Let me thank the audience for joining us um, today. I hope you found the conversation as interesting as uh, as I have, and uh, hope to welcome you all back to ODI very soon again. Thanks again for being with us, Rit. Thank you so much.